And then there are my focus priorities, which get to the, the, the here and now. Um, and, and those are three things, readiness, modernization, and reform. So I think over the next few years, several years, you'll see more equipment coming to the field to, to, your, to the soldiers, whether it's uh, whether you're in an infantry squad, you'll see uh, new night vision goggles, uh, better protective equipment, and in a couple years you'll see uh, you know, new rifles being introduced to the Army. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and for this episode, I had the opportunity to spend some time speaking with Secretary of the Army Mark Esper. As the senior most civilian official in the Department of the Army, his vision for the service and his priorities will shape the way the Army mans, trains, and equips over the coming years. And we'll talk about that vision and those priorities, but he also has experience as an active duty Army officer and later in both the Army Reserve and the National Guard. We're going to hear how those experiences really influence the perspective he brings to his current job. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple quick notes. Hopefully you're already subscribed to the MWI podcast. If not, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take just a few moments and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really helps us to get the word out to new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Secretary of the Army, Mark Esper. Sir, thank you so much for uh, making some time for uh, this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Uh, I want to ask you, you are now the senior most civilian official in the Department of the Army, but your experience with the Army goes back uh, to West Point. You were a 1986 graduate. Can you talk a little bit about how your past experiences as a company commander, uh, your time on active duty and in the reserve components sort of inform the perspective you bring to your position now as Secretary of the Army? Yeah, sure thing, John, and thank you, first of all, for for having me on to this podcast. Um, as you said, I graduated from the Academy in 1986 and was commissioned infantry. And uh, after doing my basic course in Ranger School and Pathfinder School, I, I found myself at the 101st Airborne Division doing all the typical things that an infantry lieutenant does and then deploying with the uh, unit to the first Gulf War. I uh, came back from that and then, of course, uh, went to Italy where I commanded um, as a rifle company commander in the 325 uh, Airborne Battalion Combat Team over there for a couple years before coming back to the States. And then after that, I left active duty after 10 years and then went into the Guard for several years and then finally the Army Reserve. And so a total of 21 years. Uh, that said, I find myself every day falling back on any one of those experiences, um, certainly as we deal with issues of uh, training and readiness and uh, maintaining one's equipment and vehicles, uh, it just all goes back to my experiences as a, uh, as a lieutenant and a captain. Uh, it, uh, that part of the Army has not changed much in terms of how you train soldiers, how you conduct physical fitness, how you prepare for war. And then other circumstances where it involves the reserve components, I found myself, again, uh, thinking back to those experiences I had, whether it was in the 29th Infantry of the Virginia Guard or in the Army Reserve, and what does that mean from a, a Compo two or three soldier as we deal with situations here on the Army staff. So, so you've got a number of years of experience, of, of, of unique and varied experience that you bring to the job. Um, you've, you've, you've been in the office now for 
a little over three months, uh, and I understand you've been traveling quite a bit. How has how how has that kind of uh, further informed your perspective? What have you learned over those past few months of traveling, really around the world? I understand. Yeah, it's a great question. So you're right. I've been here uh, on the job a little over three months, and so I took the first really eight weeks, if you will, to go back out and make my own assessment of the Army and reacquaint myself with the Army because time has passed and things change. And so my first trip was to the National Training Center in California. Uh, I eventually went to Fort Bragg and to uh, uh, Redstone Arsenal in, in Alabama and then overseas. So I went from uh, Afghanistan, both Kabul and Kandahar, uh, to Korea, and I spent some time both on the peninsula and in, in U.S. Army Hawaii, and then lastly to Europe. And in Europe, and I just got back from there two weeks ago, I was uh, in, in Germany, in Poland, in Belgium, and in Ukraine. So in each stop, I was able to see uh, active uh, guard and reserve soldiers training, uh, performing, preparing for their mission. And it has been just a fantastic chance to, again, make my own assessments of where we stand with regard to training and readiness and, and again, reacquaint myself with with the Army, how it's changed since either my days on active duty or my days on, on Guard and Reserve. So it's been very informative and very helpful and, and, has, and has assisted me greatly as issues have come up to the Army staff and uh, to, the, to, my, to myself for decision or for information. So beyond those, um, you know, would, uh, imagine are quite frequent decisions that you have to make that, that sort of come up to you. What are your kind of longer term priorities uh, for your time here in office? So I have, uh, I have two sets of priorities. First, uh, I, I call my enduring priorities, and those are taking care of soldiers, civilians, and their families. I mean, that's nonstop. Oh, we do that every day day in, day out in the Army, because the Army is a people business. Um, the second is a recommitment to Army values, and I've asked everyone in my first message to the field to do that, particularly leaders, because in, in times of great transition, it's important that we, we embrace those values and live by them. And then third is to continue to build strategic partnerships and alliances, um, you know, whether it's with our allies in Europe or our, or our allies in, in, in Asia. And then there are my focus priorities, which get to the, the, the here and now um, and, and those are three things, readiness, modernization, and reform. And on readiness, that's priority number one. And that means making sure we're ready from a uh, personnel deployability uh, factor to uh, equipment maintenance to munitions or to training. Make sure we're ready to fight and win, deploy, fight, and win tonight. And uh, again, as I've gone around, around the Army and made my reassessment, I've, I found that we are, we're, we're doing really well, uh, some areas better than others. But um, that's been my focus as I've gone out to the field. And, of course, we're doing other things with regard to modernization and reform that we can talk about. But those are my six priorities as, as I've outlined them, and they certainly are consistent with um, where the Secretary of Defense is going, uh, the direction of the National Defense Strategy. So all those things nest nicely with where, uh, what the future of the Army uh, would look like a few years down the road. One of the things that, um, that strikes me is that I think anybody that – you know, even with more than a casual interest in, in the Army, but certainly members of the force, um, they kind of understand intuitively what you mean when you say readiness, what you mean when you say modernization, and what you mean when you say reform. But I also wonder if kind of the further you get from, from here, uh, from the Pentagon, uh, the less um, intuitive it is of what that actually looks like. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how is readiness, how is the uh, pursuit of, of, of readiness going to... Um, change the experiences of soldiers in the force. Well, first on the, uh, the in terms of explaining readiness, it, it is hard if you haven't served um, or you don't know somebody in uniform to explain to 
um, uh, to explain to them what readiness means. I, I, I use the metaphor of a football team or a sports team, if you will, in terms of preparing for games and, and uh, the importance of having being able to put everybody on the field, uh, equipment readiness, all those things. So you have to, you have to be able to explain readiness in, in a way that people understand it. With regard to the force, uh, what, what it will mean for soldiers, I think, is this. Um, and we'll set aside the, the deployability churn, which Im- impacts all this, is we, first of all, have to make sure they have the, the tools, weapons, and equipment they need to, to really uh, be successful in an overwhelming way on the battlefield. So we have to ensure overmatch. And, and I th- so I think over the next few years, several years, you'll see more equipment coming to the field to to your to the soldiers, whether it's uh, whether you're in an infantry squad, you'll see uh, new night vision goggles, uh, better protective equipment, and a couple years you'll see uh, you, you know new rifles being introduced to the army. You know, if you're uh, if you're in the armor cavalry, you'll see that we're continuing to upgrade the vehicles. We're con- going to continue to make uh, strikers more lethal, and you go to artillery. Again, we're investing a lot of money into long range precision fire. So across the board. With regard to readiness and equipment, you'll see changes there. When it comes to training, we're trying to, to uh, really make sure we have uh, 20 CTC rotations a year. So uh, a lot more CTC rotations. That's to NTC, JRTC, and then to uh, CM, uh, JMRC over in, in, um, in Germany, and much more focused on the high-end conflict. Uh, within that same training bucket, we'll be doing a lot more training at home. So we're trying to lift a lot of, uh, whether it's mandatory training uh, dis- training distractors, uh, additional duties, reporting requirements. We're trying to lift that all off the soldier uh, by lifting it off the chain of command and make sure we have more time at home station to train on tasks, at least to do individual skills and maybe some um, uh, collective tr- training at the company level and below so that you're prepared to do either uh, an NTC rotation or go on longer deployment. And then, of course, maintenance, uh, in my view, as I've grown up in the Army, um, maintenance is training and getting back to that philosophy, making sure the parts and supply system work. So you should see more of that in the, is when you go to the motor pool or, or, or your unit armor, we'll see a lot more of those parts they need. So across the board, we're moving out in a number of ways. Uh, a lot of it is, uh, is requires money and we've been, uh, blessed, uh, by a, a budget agreement, which gives us uh, really great funding for FY 18 and FY 19. But then a lot of it is what we, um, either here in the Pentagon, but certainly commanders in the field can do to free up more time uh, to do train, to train, to do maintenance, et cetera. And there's going to be a big focus on that as well. I want to move on to the, the last priority that you talked about, uh, reform. What, is, what does that mean? What, when you say reform, what are we talking about? Sure. Well, the, the short answer is uh, anything we can do to free up time, money, and manpower, uh, because those are always in scarce supply. And uh, we have a number of initiatives that are uh, underway right now in various stages. Uh, so it's everything from reducing our contracting services to a more manageable number uh, so that we get more value out of it, um, all the way to a major reform. And in this sense, it's standing up the Army Futures Command, which will mark the most significant change in the Army's organizational structure since 1973. And what that will entail is really aligning um, to ensure unity of effort, unity of command, all the different parts of uh, the modernization process under a single commander. And uh, the promise, of course, is to make sure we provide by for the soldiers, again, those tools, equipment, weapons they need when they need it, um, with fewer people, with, uh, with, with less schedule delay, 
uh, and, and with less cost than what we've seen in the past on some uh, some other big programs. So so that's reform. Um, we're talking about a new uh, physical fitness test, a combat readiness test. Uh, we're talking about um, right-sizing headquarters to make sure that we, as we uh, as we look at the headquarters and their functions, we have sufficient people in, in in the areas where we need them. And if there are things that we are we are doing that are not value added or have a low return on investment, that we stop doing them. Uh, because if we can free up persons from the headquarters, that allows us to put more soldiers down in the units where we where we really need to have um, uh, units at full strength uh, that are deploying. So it, it, it reform spans a whole uh, realm of things. Uh, it also includes auditing, doing audits, uh, making sure we understand where we're spending our dollars, um, and making sure we're doing training properly. And um, I think something of interest to Modern War Institute is making sure that we continue to advance our doctrine reform as we flesh out uh, multi-domain battle, make sure that we, we continue to uh, implement all the, all the successive uh, documents, doctrinal documents, uh, and then training manuals, et cetera, that flow from that and get that inculcated throughout our school system. So a number of things on a, on a variety of fronts to really uh, move the Army into, its, in, into the, the next future, if you will. Uh, you made you made reference to the budgetary increases, the Army budget increases. Um, there, we're also talking about end strength increases. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the challenges when you seek to grow the Army and do so fairly quickly? Uh, some of the challenges that that need to be identified, and then you know how how we can overcome yeah. them. So one challenge, of course, is budget. As you mentioned, uh, we again with this budget agreement, we're going to see six percent growth from fy 17 to fy 18 and from fy 18 to fy 19 we'll see eight percent growth so we have good dollars uh there to help with that um the other challenge though is making sure that we can uh, uh we can grow at a pace that we can ensure the quality of our force and we can absorb those soldiers uh into the training in, we can access them uh properly so that means uh be, beyond the dollars we need to make sure we get dollars at a predictable uh, in a predictable way and that in a timely way uh, because otherwise we lose the opportunities to bring more soldiers into the Army uh, to fill training seats uh, and that impacts end strength. Um, it, you know, the other factor with regard to end strength is uh, making sure we have sufficient uh, number of recruiters, that we have a good marketing and ad campaign, um, and, and that we are reaching out to the right influencers, if you will, across America to really attract the, the, the best and brightest from, uh, from across the country. So there are a number of factors there. We have to grow at a steady pace. Uh, again, the key is, is not sacrificing quality, and uh, that's something that uh, the chief and I agree. We will not sacrifice quality to build the force, but we clearly need to have a, a much larger force. Uh, doing so allows us to flesh out the units as they now stand. That also allows us to make the formations more robust, uh, whether it's adding mobile short-range air defenses or air or or um, uh, additional indirect fires or engineers. And then it allows us, uh, uh, of course, to do a number of other functions that, as we look to the future uh, of the Army. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the reserve components, the Army Reserve and the National Guard? Um, as you can sort of conceptualize all of these priorities and we kind of move forward, um, you know, the the reserve components have been used differently throughout different periods. We're relied on quite heavily um, during the 2000s uh, when, when you know, at the peak of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Is the is the sort of the proper role of the reserve components changing or should it? Well, the, the role of the reserves has changed. And when I say reserves, I mean both the, you know, the Army Reserve and uh, Army National Guard. 
uh, from my time in the service, it was considered more of a strategic reserve. And then over time, it transitioned to an operational reserve. And I think now it's fair to say, at least my assessment is they are an operational force. And they, uh, again, the reserves and the Guard are performing extremely well. As I travel around the Army, particularly overseas, I, I find myself uh, bumping into Guard units and Guardsmen all the time uh, as an illustration. In Europe, for example, the, uh, there was a, a Guard unit working in Poland. Uh, the Na New York National Guard was training the Ukrainians in, in western Ukraine where I visited. And uh, uh, guardsmen in, 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 uh, from uh, California down in Kandahar. So I find the guard everywhere. They are doing extremely well. Usually when I meet with a command team, uh, it's an integrated team of all three components. And I cannot tell the difference between them unless I look around, the, look around at their shoulder patch and figure out the, that they are from, you know, what, uh, different components. So they are performing extremely well. Um, and I couldn't be more proud of, uh, of, 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 of what they're doing out there and uh, their commitment to, to our nation's security. So does that mean that they are, that the reserve corps are likely to remain an operational force? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I, def I think so. Uh, I mean, they've proven themselves uh, certainly through uh, years of hard combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, and now they are, um, uh, uh, now they are proving themselves uh, equally skilled and adept at these deployments that we're doing, uh, whether it's to Europe on these nine-month heel-to-toe rotations or the similar type of rotations to Korea. The Guard and Reserves are involved there and uh, are integral to the force, and we probably couldn't meet those deployment requirements without them. And so they are critical. I don't see any let-up in those types of deployments anytime soon. And, uh, and we're not even talking about state partnership programs or other areas where the Guard is pulling uh, uh, you know, the bulk of the load. So I could talk about Kosovo as an example, where uh, the guards are, are performing that mission very well. So uh, I, I think the Guard as an operational force is here to stay. Guard and Reserve is here to stay. And then as we continue to, um, um, again, evolve the force, they, the Compost 2 and 3 will continue to evolve with the active forces as well. You mentioned earlier uh, doctrine. Uh, you specifically referenced multi-domain battle. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about what that would mean as it transitions from concept to doctrine uh, what it would mean for the army uh, there's been some talk I think about service cultures and how unique service cultures are really important and they reflect sort of uh, the realities of the environments that each service fights in and operates in and, and their unique requirements um, if multi-domain battle will require further jointness um, what does that mean for say the unique service cultures of the army I don't think it changes the, the service cultures. I think we need to uh, we need to embrace the service cultures and, and leverage their strengths. I mean, I've had this discussion with my uh, with my uh, colleagues, uh, Secretary of Navy uh, and, and the Secretary of the Air Force, and we all agree that uh, you know we need to be able to operate effectively and and easily in in different domains. So whether it's, for example, the Army supporting uh, the, the Navy with indirect fires. Uh, or certainly, of course, as we've done for decades, the Air Force supporting the Army uh, with, with uh, you know, close air support or whatnot. We, we need to be able to more easily, readily, uh, and, and effectively be able to work across those types of domains. Now, of course, then there, there are the other dom domains that expand, uh, if you will, air-land battle. And that is, uh, you know, how do you operate in a cyber domain? How do you operate in a space domain? Uh, so you have three services right now. Most people probably don't appreciate that all three of us operate in space. And uh, we talk about that as well. So, um, you know, it, it, that's one big change from my time in the Army. We, 
uh, at least not from from my foxhole did, did I worry much about space at that time and and certainly not cyberspace and EW was something that uh, you know division or higher handled but now if you go out there in, into the field uh, battalion commanders are worrying uh, certainly about EW they're worrying about cyber they're worrying about worrying about drones um, and, and space as a big factor in terms of communications so all those are are, are uh, are uh, new variables, uh, new domains, and uh, in many ways, the commanders in the field, whether it's a, a, a training exercise or a, a deployment, are operating in a multi-domain environment now. Uh, the, the challenge is, of course, is as you said up front, is to make sure the concepts to, it, it continue to evolve into doctrine, and then doctrine involves into uh, training manuals, field manuals, and again, is, is uh, proliferated throughout our school system so that uh, we, we have a better foundational understanding and um, uh, in, in terms of how to implement that uh, for our leaders across the Army. We have a um, fairly diverse audience, uh, international as well. We have a number of listeners from allied countries, um, but a lot of our listeners are men and women who wear the U.S. Army uniform. Is there anything else, kind of last parting thoughts, that you would like to um, kind of communicate to uh, the people what what they should what, they, what soldiers should maybe know about their army going forward. Yeah, I would first of all just thank them for their service. Um, and these are challenging times. The army is going through a transition now, uh, coming off. I shouldn't say coming off as much as uh, you know we're still engaged in in the Middle East, certainly in Iraq and Syria, and engaged in Afghanistan. But at the same time, uh, we're being asked to open up our lens, our aperture and uh, consider, a, once again, a strategic competition with uh, competitors such as China and Russia. And we face the near-term challenges of certainly North Korea on the peninsula and Russia and Europe. So we're, we're, while, we're, while we've been doing low-intensity conflict for many years, we're now asking all of them uh, to deploy more often and to um, be prepared for that higher-end fight. So I really appreciate their commitment uh, to the service, to, uh, to the nation, and really the sacrifices that they, they and their families make uh, to do that. Without the, our soldiers, uh, we wouldn't be uh, the greatest combat force in history, um, and we wouldn't be able to prevail in the battlefield like we have for so many years. So I really appreciate their service and let them know that uh, the Army leadership and I are doing all we can to make sure that uh, when they go into battle, they are, uh, they are well-trained, they are well-equipped, and they are well-led so that they will prevail in any future fight. Well, Secretary Esper, I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for, for making some time for us. Okay, thank you, John. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you're not already following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We want to connect with other people with an interest in the topics we cover, and it is a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again.